Thanks, Annie. Uh, this is uh, totally surreal. It's really a beautiful place you guys are at. Uh, pretty than Chicago. Uh, I've never read in an opera house before. I promise I will not sing. Uh, I'm going to read um, from a new thing. Um, so I won't read too long, and we can just talk afterward um, if you have ideas for how to like make this better. <laughs> um, so uh, the poem is called Readings in World Literature. It's, uh, it's named for a, a class that I uh, teach unsuccessfully at the University of Chicago. This isn't being recorded or videotaped, right? Okay, I'm up for tenure now, so. <laughs> and I'm, I'm gonna time myself. Readings in world literature. There's, a, there's an epigraph, it's pretentious, I know, um, from uh, the composer, com composer Berlioz, from his letters. Time is a great teacher, they say. The pity of it is, she kills all her students. One. In the dismal, inky, and unprofitable research of a recent leave of absence, I came across an inscription on a historical prism of Ashurbanipal, which I found to be somewhat disquieting of an enemy whose remains he had abused in a manner that does not bear repeating here. This most violent and scholarly of Mesopotamian kings pronounces, I made him more dead than he was before. Prisms of this sort were often buried in the foundations of government buildings and therefore intended to be read by gods, but not men. Somewhere in the maze of carols and stacks, I thought I could hear a low dial tone humming without end. In Ashurbanipal's library, there's a poem written on clay, which corrects various commonly held errors regarding the world of the dead. Contrary to the accounts of Mulian, Odysseus, and Quasi Benefo, for example, it is not customarily permitted to visit the underworld. No, the underworld visits you. Two, tunneling through sleep, the underworld visits a secondary character. Closing the door to the dream behind him, he notices that the inside bolt is thick with dust. He passes a heap of discarded crowns. The inmates, their mouths stained with clay, are suited in feathers. At the end of the corridor, he arrives at a registration desk's desk. There was the queen of the underworld, the goddess Ereshkigal. Before her crouched Beletseri, the clerk of the underworld holding a tablet, reading aloud in her presence. 
She raised her head. She saw me. Who was it fetched this man here? Who was it brought this fellow here? Cuneiform tablets describing the Mesopotamian house of dust frequently refer to a clerk who must enter the names of those scheduled to die each day. Little is known of this indefatigable figure. First, she has only one inexhaustible theme. Second, she writes for an ideal reader, the Lady of the Dead, who perpetually tears at her hair with fingers like pickaxes. Third, she writes in a timeless form which allows for considerable prosodic variation en route to a fixed conclusion. Three. Some fragments from Ashurbanipal's library may have fallen from an upper story as the royal palace burned, while others were fractured by weather, the plow, war, or archaeology itself. In the twilight of the last millennium, however, one buoyant Assyriologist predicted that the holes in this poem will undoubtedly be filled by further discoveries of tablets in the ruined mounds of Mesopotamia. But there are so many holes. The hole in which the hero and his friend pray for safe passage to the cedar forest. The hole containing an account of the friend's pitiable death throes. The hole where the grave used to be. I'm afraid recent developments in the region make Professor George's prognostication less than likely. For the time being, this house of dust, older than Hades, is in pieces all over creation. Four. Already it is beginning to seem that I cannot avoid the subject of this nation's interminable occupation of the Republic of Iraq. But I would have preferred to write something along the lines of a poetic essay on comparative underworlds. For the past few years, I've taught an introductory course titled Readings in World Literature, which has generally proven to be a disappointment both to myself and to the students, some in headscarves, some occasionally dressed in fatigues, who have registered for this seminar in order to satisfy their humanities requirement. It confirmed my hatred of epics and reaffirmed my faith that I will never study medieval literature. <laughs> the instructor is fairly intelligent and enthusiastic about his brand of writing, but is unreceptive, even intolerant, of anything that is not a poem or a poem in prose form. Made me question the value of higher learning it can so easily become detached from real life. I thought that by writing about teaching, I might learn something. There would be assignments, a midterm, and a final examination, followed by some sort of internal unraveling and the sound of snow falling on rooftops at night. I needed to find my footing in the order of things. And because I know almost nothing about the world, 
I decided to work my way up from below. Five, <clears throat> introduction to the underworld, cross-listed with complet. In this course, students will be ferried across the river of sorrow, subsist on a diet of clay, weigh their hearts against a feather on the infernal balance, and ascend a viewing pagoda in order to gaze upon their homelands until emptied of all emotion. Texts will include the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Mayan Book of the Dead, the Ethiopian Book of the Dead, and Muriel Rukeyser's Book of the Dead. <laughs> the goals of the course are to acquaint students with the posthumous regimes which entrench the division of humankind in perpetuity and to help them develop the communication skills that are crucial for success in today's global marketplace. <laughs> All readings in English. Requirements include the death of the student, an oral presentation, and a 20-page final paper. Six. A jealous despot writing, too, can make you more dead than you were before. In a letter to a fiancé he never married, Kafka touches upon the state of affairs. What I need for my writing is seclusion, not like a hermit, that would not be enough, but like the dead. Writing, in this sense, is a sleep deeper than that of death, and just as one would not and cannot tear the dead from their graves, so I must not and cannot be torn away from my desk at night. I sometimes caution my students against quoting other writers in their poems. You don't want the most memorable lines in your work to belong to somebody else, I profess. But really, I think it has more to do with some sort of limbic taboo about inviting the dead to enter one's study. Our standard editorial versions of several Mes Mesopotamian poems, including the Epic of Gilgamesh, were originally redacted by an ancient class of priestly exorcists. Kafka was a kind of exorcist, too. Here's his incantation. One can never be alone enough when one writes. There can never be enough silence surrounding one who writes. Even night is not night enough. Seven. I promised my wife that I would call Dr. Song today. After putting the baby down for a nap and slipping outside for a smoke, I lifted the receiver. The sound it emitted, which I've heard without pause countless times before, seemed to me otherworldly now, like somebody's finger playing upon the wet rim of a crystal bowl in a derelict theater before the wars. I can't say how long I stood there listening. It may have been seconds or seasons. The rings of Saturn kept turning in their groove. 
for reasons I do not fully understand, my unit on Dante was not scheduled until the following quarter. I dialed 1-800-INFERNO. And before the first ring, a woman's voice answered in heavily accented English. Is it you? I think so, I replied. Outside my window, the honey locusts sprinkled their pale spinning leaves. Focusing on one as it fell seemed to slow the general descent. O creature, gracious and good, traversing the dusky element to visit us who stained the world with blood, the woman recited, as if reading against her will from a prepared text. I could hear rain trickling in a gutter spout on the other end of the line. Please remove my name from your list, I said, and place the receiver back in its cradle. Eight. While outlining the requirements for our crit first critical essay of the term, I notice a hand rising tentatively, like a snake charmer's serpent in the classroom's farthest corner. What if I'm ideologically opposed to revision? Asks the red-headed boy in a new slave's t-shirt. A city bus unloads its pageantry at just outside the window. A handful of sparrows erupts from the equestrian statue on the quad. I remember Sun Tzu's advice to humanities instructors, which I review on index cards on the eve of each new term. Hold up baits to entice the enemy, feign disorder, and crush him. <clears throat> what exactly is your ideology? I ask, stroking my beard mentally. I'm a Zen Naxalite crypto objectivist, replied my interlocutor. How about you? Removing the stray bran flake that I've discovered too late, lodged in my beard. <laughs> I have no choice but to improvise. Pro recycling? Anti genocide? A voice from beyond my peripheral vision says, you're nothing but a pseudo-Kantian neoliberal mirage with meta-narcissistic tendencies. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Nine. A window onto the purgatorial cosmology of late imperial China may be found on page 26 of Leon Uyghur's Folklore Chinoise Moderne, Sincien, Imprimerie de la Mission Catholique, 1909. Throughout his 40 years of residence in the Celestial Empire, this unsung Jesuit sinologist labored to dismantle what he once called the whole unbearable grid into which we have forcibly cantonized God's children. Contemporary Anglophone readers, however, must do without an English version 
of Father Uyghur's folklore. I don't want any more English translations, he writes in a letter to his superiors, dated 3 February 1929. English benefits Protestants, and it is not my goal to do so. Thus, the strange tale of Chen from Hu Chu Fu remains largely unknown in this land. But if you'll pardon my French, which is damnable indeed, I thought I might venture the following rough English rendition for purposes of instruction. Draft only. Please do not circulate. <clears throat> 10. In Hu Chu Fu, the magistrate's assistant Chen was taking a nap in his study. Suddenly, a spirit appeared and beckoned to him. It led him down a path hidden by rustling thickets of bamboo to a clearing where, on a pedestal, an enormous mirror waited in the moonlight. Regard what you once were, intoned the spirit. Looking into the mirror, Chen saw a man in a quaint cap and scarlet shoes, dressed like a scholar from the past. Now see, said the spirit, what you were in the life before that one. Chen looked again into the mirror and saw a high official in old Ming costume, black cap, red robe, belt with jade buckle, black boots. Just then, a servant entered the clearing, prostrated himself before Chen, and said to him, Don't you recognize me? I was your servant in Ta Tung Fu, but then again, that was over 200 years ago. With that, he handed a scroll to Chen. Que si? Chen asked. Voi si, said the servant. So I'll skip over a, a section or two of just ba bad French mistranslation of this Chinese story. Uh, but basically all you need to know is that uh, Chen has to go to the underworld uh, because he's committed some crimes in a previous life that he has no recollection of. 13. Our nanny called in sick yesterday, and I stayed home with the baby, watching a tree squirrel tuck twigs and trash into a wreck of a nest outside the kitchen window, instead of continuing with my translation. I love eyebrows, announced Mira, crumpling her bib. I love napkins. I love upstairs. On the radio, a program about efforts to restore various archaeological sites in and around the provincial capital of Al-Hila, where the ancient Mesopotamian city of Babylon once stood. Speaking through an interpreter, a government official described how the 2,600-year-old paving stones of the ancient city's processional way had been crushed under the treads of M1 Abrams tanks. Concertina wire lined extensive trenches dug for firing positions. A heliport had been constructed in the ruins. 
the remains of a ziggurat, which some scholars believe may be the original site of the Tower of Babel, however, appeared to be spared for the time being. I love flowers. I love fire, Mira continued. I love foreheads, too. At some point in the day, Dr. Song left a message for me, but I couldn't make anything of it. Later that evening, I looked in the bathroom mirror to see if I could discern any trace of infractions from a previous life. All I could see, though, was the chipped and tarnished surface of the mirror itself, flickering almost imperceptibly. I looked again. This time, to my relief, I saw a man dressed like a scholar from the recent past. Vintage cardigan, thinning hair, an untenured affect of worry beyond repair. I love forks. I love giraffes. I love handles, too. Fourteen. <clears throat> Melanoma, from the ancient Greek verb melino, to blacken, combined with the nominalizing suffix ma, which indicates process or action. Hence, pragma, action or occurrence, from prato, to do, or poema, poem, from poieo, to make. These days, it is obligatory for survivors' narratives to muse upon the etymologies of their various illnesses and medical treatments. It lends grandeur to the experience of leafing through Red Book in an empty examination room while dressed in a paper gown that won't draw clothes around the back. But I cannot refrain from wondering at how a description, black, becomes an action to blacken, which in turn becomes a thing, melanoma, a darkening. There's a whole grammar and metaphysics to this black traffic. The root points backwards to the Sanskrit mala, dirt, or filth, and forward to our modern English melancholy. Seventeen. The odds are good, Dr. Song tells me in his office. Still, he blinks too much as he answers my wife's questions about this perplexing case. Melanoma is exceedingly rare among ind individuals of my dusky extraction and virtually non-existent among younger members of this population. You're a medical miracle joked one nurse before I went under, but not the good kind. <laughs> At least my tests show no spread to the neighboring lymph nodes, which lowers the probability of mortality within three years to roughly one in 10. Not bad odds. I resolved to not make too much of my condition in the days to come. But the complimentary brochure that I take from the rack as I exit the reception area says I mustn't make too little of it either. In this respect, my condition is not unlike the war. 
I don't want to make too much of it in my ambient transactional order. But I don't want to make too little of it either. Eighteen. <clears throat> the judge ordered the spirit to accompany Chen home. They retraced their steps through the pathway hidden by bamboo and emerged into the clearing with a mirror once more. There, his old servant congratulated Chen on his acquittal. Come, said the spirit with a smile, and see what you were in this life. Chen looked in the mirror and saw himself dressed as an assistant magistrate of the Tsing dynasty. Now see what you're going to become. At these words, Chen was so convulsed by horror that he awoke, bathed in great beads of sweat. He was stretched out in his study, his whole family weeping around him. Somebody told him that he had lain dead to the world all day and night, the area around his heart alone retaining some faint trace of human warmth. Suspended at intervals throughout the court of the otherworldly judge, Chen had noticed a number of banners adorned with infernal maxims. He could remember none but the following. The court of the dead makes exceptions for no one. When the waters fall, the stones appear. Thus everything is revealed in its time. All is counted on the infinite abacus. Nineteen. <clears throat> Things are becoming a shade Eurocentric by this point in the syllabus, don't you think? It was new slaves again, declaring an end to our de facto armistice. To make matters worse, the dial tone in my head had resurfaced, only now it sounded like nothing so much as a flat-lined EKG monitor. Sorry? You can't just peddle Orientalist esoterica mediated by quasi-post-structuralist translation practices in service of a faux-naive globalizing logic, he continued, as if reading from an invisible grimoire. That sort of vulgar cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism merely facilitates the Western colonization of the underworld as a site of metaphysical alterity. He had a point. <laughs> Fine, I said. Can you think of some place we might start over again? That's your job, not mine. The room had assumed the tenebrous gloom of a star chamber. The days were growing colder. I watched the clock on the classroom's far wall pulsing, mercifully, indifferently, toward the end of the period. There's always Shibalba, ventured a quiet girl to my left, whose name I had yet to learn. Never been there, I said. 20. My father likes to tell this story, said the quiet girl. 
He heard it from an old woman in the forest while he was AWOL from the Guatemalan army. People stopped packing away their books. Some who had stood up to leave sat down again. He wasn't cut out for marching all over the country burning down people's houses. He says the pay was a joke. It was dangerous work, too. One girl threw lime in his friend's eyes and blinded him for good. When the villagers didn't have machetes or stones on hand, they would even throw chile in your face. So he ran away into the mountains and was lost there for weeks and weeks, maybe months. He doesn't know how long. How did he survive? asked a green boy with a thick Boston accent. He lived on river snails and whatever else he could find in the forest. Finally, he came across a village high in the clouds where the people knew nothing about the outside world. They grew everything in their gardens, plantains, pumpkins, maize, beans, but they were so isolated, they didn't have salt, only some kind of black stone that they used instead. To my father, it was wonderful. He says he still misses the taste. So I'll just skip forward to just <clears throat> a few sections uh, late in the poem. 29. Now and then I find myself scrolling through lists of the most recent fatalities online. A website called Iraq Body Count, with a grim little image of an American stealth bomber dispensing its munitions at the top of the page, logs documented civilian deaths from violence in the form of a scarlet graph that calls to mind a medical chart of some patient's disordered brain activity. You can even download an IBC counter for your website or blog, though that seems like overkill to me. I never get far in these lists. I just dip in and out of them, not because it would be too painful to go on, but because it would be not be painful enough. Wife of dead man, Al-Zahra, East Mosul. Sister-in-law of dead man, Al-Zahra, East Mosul. Daughter of dead man, Al-Zahra, East Mosul. Perhaps if the Antigones at Iraq body count could include a thumbnail image of each victim or a few lines of verse in honor of the deceased, that might be helpful. Anyway, I sprinkle some dust between subcommittee meetings and visits to the Xerox machine in this manner. <coughs> 31. The river of fire, according to certain dead Greeks, feeds into the river of pain. From the river of pain spring two rivers, the river of lamentation and the river of hate. The river of forgetting is a separate affair entirely. At the sight of sinners approaching, the Vaitarani seethes like butter in a frying pan, says the Garuda Purana. Sharanadi in Sanskrit 
is the river of ash. As the sun god Ra floats down the river of the hidden chamber, his head is exchanged for that of a ram. The vessel too changes shape underfoot. Serpent boat, one-eyed boat, funeral boat, boat towed by jackals as it journeys toward the third hour of the night. The sun cannot step into the same boat twice. To my knowledge, the Zoroastrian River of Tears has no name. Those for whom much lamentation is made find it swollen with tears and difficult to cross, attests Ardaviroth. The passage is easier for those who go unwept. And one last section. 33. The day after the blizzard, I emerged with my shovel to dig an igloo for Mira. The snow seems lit by a cornflower glow from within, as if there were a whole sky cached underneath. Die Nacht unter dem Salze goes Holderlin's Sophocles. The night under the salt. Earlier this morning, the government unveiled new procedures for deciding the fate of those foreign souls incarcerated in our name. I let the thought pass. As I dig, I'm aware of an absence of sensation where the, where the dissolving sutures vanished long ago. Song says it's a matter of time before feeling returns. I let this thought too pass. My wife tows Mira, an unstable weather system unto herself, around the yard on a plastic blue sled while I heap up a perimeter. Our daughter it's, is, it seems, still too little to thrill with a house made of snow. Later, we'll take turns crawling inside coaxing her to join us for hot chocolate or a story. But she balks at the entrance, quizzical, lit from behind in her parka and toque. Crouching there in that hollow, I feel nearly at home for reasons quite beyond me.